Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories Retold. My name is Brian, and this is an episode that we've pulled from the back catalog to revisit for one reason or another. And the reason this time is the holidays. We're going back to our 2021 Christmas episode about the song Do They Know It's Christmas Time at All by Band Aid. Now, a few notes on this episode of the show. Murdoch is not present for this episode. Now, I understand that for some of you, that is a deal breaker, and I totally agree. But we do have a great second chair. Phil Medley, who stops by the show from time to time to fill in for Murdoch, is on this episode, and he and I both worked in commercial radio along with Murdoch at one point. And so he has a lot of the same viewpoints on commercial Christmas music. And so we will talk a little bit about that. We will get into the Bob Geldof and Midge Yuri of it all. Uh, we will talk about the many, the huge cast of characters involved in pulling this whole thing off. And of course, we'll talk about those lyrics. Those damn lyrics. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? You're either gonna you're even gonna get a little bit of a history lesson on uh, how Christmas is celebrated throughout the world. So if you haven't had enough Christmas content, we're here for you. We've got it taken care of. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa. Regardless of what you're celebrating this week, or if you're celebrating at all, or if you're not celebrating, uh, we love you. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for sharing it with your friends. We appreciate you. Uh, hit us up on Instagram at Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, or find us uh, on the interwebs at WeAreTheStoryGuys.com and on the email at WeAreTheStoryGuys at gmail.com. And now, without further ado, but with lots of Yuletide love, here is. A Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories retold episode going back to December of 2021 for a little bit about Band-Aid. I just want to sort of talk through something, and I think you're going to have a lot to share uh, <laughs> because you and I were both in the trenches of commercial radio for a long time. Yeah. And, and yeah. I don't. I want to be careful not to trivialize the term PTSD because it's very real. <laughs> right. But, you don't but, want to do that. But... <laughs> but I, but I will say that a, a decade plus in the radio business left me a little sensitive to Christmas music in general. Like, oh, man. I, I mean, I may not call it post-traumatic stress disorder, I, I, but I definitely would call it post-thematic Santa disorder. Like, I, yes, it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we we both worked at different times for companies that took a station to one hundred percent Christmas. That, that's a format. And right. like, I think we need to explain this because there's probably people who have never even listened to the radio. If we have young enough people in this, uh, in our listenership, um, who are like, what the radio, what's that? Is that like a walkie talkie? <laughs> um, but, but so we don't have to go too deep radio nerd, but I think there are some things to explain about what this means and how it works. And then we'll get to the bulk of what I want to talk about today, which is a, a very specific song that has forever <laughs> been put into the myelin in my brain. So, uh, First of all, I want to say that when you take – this is a tactic where you change. You temporarily change the format of an existing radio station. Yeah, yeah. You change your radio station to something totally different, basically. It, even in the digital age, that's a bunch of work. You're literally switching out a library. I mean, much yeah. easier in the digital age is I, I guess it probably was when you were literally loading discs in and out of the studio, you know, like carts and all that sort of stuff oh, in and yeah. out of the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still very tough. Now, sure. the other thing about it that people don't know is it elicits a very intense response from listeners. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Every year after radio, I still get the November 1st, 
like anxiety. Know. Oh my gosh! Did you hear what? <laughs> you know, like they're amazed too. Like like, like it away. hasn't happened before. Um, like it hasn't happened every year. <clears throat> so okay. Let's really explain what we're talking about here. There is a practice where a station that might play rock or pop or just big hits normally will take parts of November and December and literally make the only music they play Christmas music. And there is a reason for this, and it has to do with radio ratings. And I don't want to use jargon like cum and time spent listening and all that garbage. And I don't want to talk about the difference between diary markets and the places where people use people meters. But just know... That this temporary format change used to be a tactical maneuver, and it was right. done by a station that wanted to sort of like fluff up their ratings in a certain demo. Yep. Now, I don't know if you have trauma around this for this same reason, but very early in my career, I was in a station where I was getting twenty three thousand dollars a year full time, and doing I know that one all of. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing all of the work because the guy that was they brought in to be my boss was worthless. And so there's yeah. this one particular Christmas season very early in my marriage, which I'm glad I'm glad my marriage survived this, where I remember spending late nights scheduling music into the system because the boss had like already left and was like, hey, you're good. All right, good. I'm going to go out and get wasted. And uh, there yeah. I was hunched over a computer. And, you know, it was, it was hard at that point. This is early 2000s. You, you didn't really do this from home. You had to do it at a computer at the radio station. So even though you're on a computer, it, you were still right. desk bound. And so, yeah, man, I, you all, couldn't, you, you couldn't separate the Burl Ives, you know, or the, <laughs> <laughs> or whoever. I, I got a list. I got a list of the songs that have, have scarred me permanently, but all, all that aside, I introduced this concept in my troubled history because it becomes key in explaining my relationship to this particular song. I want to talk about today. When, when you're doing the 100% Christmas format, there are about five to seven songs that I consider like the core songs. The, the yeah. hits, the key music that rotated higher and faster than any other songs. Yep. And, and while I can't swear to this order, I want to see, you can add, you can add to this list, but I want to see if you think I'm, I'm okay with this list because th- these are the ones that come to mind. This feels like pretty much the core playlist for any station in, in the United States that chooses to do this format. Okay, Elton John, Step Into Christmas. Okay, I'm there, yeah. Paul McCartney, Wonderful Christmas Time. Oh, gosh, yeah. Wham, Last Christmas. Yeah, 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 yeah. A, a recent subject on the show, Jose Feliciano, Feliz Navidad. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Brenda Lee, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Springsteen's version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Of course, where he's got to do, oh, yeah, the whole intro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is, is he talking to Clarence? Is that who he's talking I to at the beginning? I think so, yes. Clarence, come here, Clarence. Hey, is he bringing you a brand new saxophone? <laughs> <laughs> but the song that just seared into my brain forever is Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas. <laughs> yes. Do, do you have any initial feelings about this song you want to just get out in the open? Okay, so initially... Um, I, right away, I'm saying, I don't know who is on that record other than Bono and Boy George. And then a bunch of British guys I don't know. Uh, uh, you know all of them. Well, not all of them. I got plenty I of stories about most of them. But you know a I, lot of them. 
Right, and that's what's like surprising. It's like e- even like when you saw him, though, it's like I don't know what the rest of Duran Duran looks like. But <laughs> is that them? Spandau Ballet. I had no idea. Uh, right. So, so here's here's the other thing I realized because and we'll talk about this. This sort of set off Bob Geldof's career as the charity yeah. hit maker. Yeah. And so there's a whole bunch of other charity songs that happen in the next like five to seven years after this, and I get them confused in terms of cast. Like so, I thought for sure Cindy Lauper was on this, but she's not. No, no, this is the all British one, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, except it was... for like Cool in the Gang or something <laughs> except weird. Except like for that. Cool in the Gang, you're no, you're you are you are way like, ahead. Who are those, why, why is it? This so I, I I will tell you why Cool in the Gang. I will tell okay. you why Cool in the Gang. It's it's coming up. Okay, so okay. because right. that is weird. It's like why the hell is Cool in the Gang? Okay, so. If for some reason you are listening to this and God has shined his light on you to such a degree that you have been spared being familiar with this thing, <laughs> let me try to capture what this is, okay? It's not your average Christmas carol. There are almost, you, to your point, you said, I know two people who are on this song. I couldn't name any others. There are almost 40. Four zero. <laughs> really? Yeah. Of the 80s biggest pop stars, which might be a little bit of an exaggeration, um, <laughs> singing some of the most asinine lyrics ever written. <laughs> And in 1984, this becomes one of the biggest songs of the year. Now, before we get to know how this thing happened, which I'll admit is fascinating, and before we get to some of the rumor and innuendo that has surfaced about what happened during this recording session, and even before we talk about the fallout from after the record came out, these questions of like intention and perception and action and all that stuff, uh, first, can we address... Does this song even make sense? <laughs> <laughs> the line doesn't make sense to me. Just the chorus itself. <laughs> okay, okay. It, I, I'm gonna. It's sp- kind of off-putting to me. Okay, I want to spare your intelligence, and I, I want to respect your intelligence. <laughs> so I'm gonna refrain from reading the entire lyric sheet, but I do want to give you a few lowlights. Okay. Um, there's a world outside your window, and it's a world of dread and fear, where the only water flowing is the bitter sting of tears. And, and the Christmas bells that ring, there are the clanging chimes of doom. Well, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. <laughs> Did Bono write this? You gotta let me in. It sounds like Bono. So Bono sings that line, and we'll get to this. Bono's not happy that he got dealt that line. Oh, really? No, no, no. Um, Bono did not write it. Uh, Bob Geldof and and Midgeri, who we will talk about at length, they they wrote the the actual lyrics, and they still like stand by them. Like, there's a lot of interviews where they're like, "Yeah, well, it's funny because at certain times in history they'll back off a little bit and be like, okay, so it sort of sucks, lay off." And then other times they'll there there were like times during. (laughs) During all the documentaries they made where they kept trying to stand by their lyrics. Um, Okay, let's look at a few more of these lyrics. Um, And there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. The greatest gift they'll get this year is life. (laughs) Where nothing ever grows. This is all just factually inaccurate. No rain nor rivers flow. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? (laughs) This this sounds like... (laughs) <laughs> it sounds like fourth grade poetry from a class in a very white neighborhood in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> like, it sounds like medieval like colonization of. <laughs> uh, okay, a couple more before a couple more before we put the lyrics away because this is going to kill all of us. Um, you ain't gotta feel guilt, just selfless. Give a little help to the helpless. That that that's really bad. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, at one point, they ask, if the table was turned, would you survive? Obviously, wow. first, this is like Intro to Anthropology Exhibit A, textbook definition ethnocentrism. <laughs> <laughs> There's that amazing line about snow, like Christmas and snow are are necessary bedfellows. You know, there's plenty of there are plenty of places in the United States where it does not snow. Do they know yeah. it's Christmas? Yeah, Florida does not know it's Christmas. <laughs> yeah, well, it's always a holiday in Florida. Uh, but okay, so here's the here's the other part that's hilarious to me. So the story goes that this whole thing starts when Bob Geldof is watching BBC News and he sees a story about a famine in Ethiopia. Okay, so yeah. Specifically in Ethiopia. Now, I did a little research because that's what I do. We are just talking about Africa. We're talking about Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is, in fact, one of the African countries that has a very robust Christmas tradition. <laughs> they do, in fact, celebrate Christmas. Uh, now, because of the Ethiopian calendar, they actually celebrate on what for us would be January 7th as opposed to December 25th. So, hmm. no, on December 25th, they do not know it's Christmas because it's not. Um, but... A few notes on Ethiopian Christmas, because why not? This is fun. Uh, many people take part in a special Advent f- uh, fast for 43 days before Christmas. Uh, they, they only eat one vegan meal a day for 43 days. Uh, another tradition, uh, actual tradition in Ethiopia. People get dressed in white. Uh, most people wear a traditional garment called an etela. And uh, traditional Christmas foods in Ethiopia include what? Have you ever eaten at uh, Queen of Sheba? I have. Uh, have. An amazing, amazing Ethiopian restaurant in our town. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. And I eat a lot of what at that uh, place, so I know exactly what this is. It's like a thick and spicy stew. It's got meat, Mm -hmm. veggies, Mm -hmm. and you eat it with injera. It's like that flat bread we use as yes, your spoon. It's the bread. Yes. Oh, it's so good. So that's a that's a like a Christmas dish there, right? So you can justify skipping the turkey and getting takeout. Uh, one last important detail. People don't give and receive presents during this time in Ethiopia. It's hmm. more of a time to go to church and eat lots and play games. So it's like a little bit more like our Easter celebration or even okay. Thanksgiving, right? So clearly I think we can just accept that the song is hugely problematic from its and- conception. And Geldof did zero research. <laughs> you know, in his defense, no internet, right? Wow, let's just... What, he didn't Google it? Come on. <laughs> oh, man. So how did this happen? That's that's what we, you know, first want to discover is why, why, and how. Uh, so the story goes, like I said, that Bob Geldof got really sad watching television. <laughs> and he's he's... He at the time. Okay, so there's an earlier episode of this show that you're not going to know about, um, but it's the third episode I think we ever did, and it's one of the stories that sort of inspired us taking on the show, which is the story of NXS and Bob Geldof, Michael Hutchins and Bob Geldof, to be more specific. Yeah. And so a big player in that episode is this uh, this woman, Paula Yates who ends up having an affair with Michael Hutchins and starts all this crazy drama. Um, but at the time of this, which is October of 84, she is happily with Bob Geldof. And they, they depending on what you read, they were either together, uh, like physically together watching this, or maybe he wasn't and he called her on set because she was a TV host. And he basically ends up becoming famous for what he does from this point on, as I mentioned. Like, raising money for charity through rock and roll, 
and like the things that happened with Michael Hutchins are sort of why people know who Bob Geldof is now. But up to this point in 84, his fame has actually come from fronting this band, the Boomtown Rats, which no one in America really remembers. But do you, do you know what movie he was in? No. He was pink in the wall. Oh, really? Yeah. So okay, no, that's, no, no, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sort of people's understanding of him up to this point. So he's watching the news report. A few days later, he calls his girlfriend, Paula Yates. And Paula is hosting the show on British TV. I think at that point, she's hosting the tube. And when he calls her to check in, Midge Yuri is there rehearsing to do a segment with his band Ultravox. Now, Ultravox is not a band that I think most Americans remember, but Midge actually did some cool stuff. Uh, he briefly did Time in Thin Lizzy, a band you and I both greatly appreciate. Uh, hey, man, did, is he in the Cowboy song? That's like one of my <laughs> I, I, I think he was like, like late period Thin Lizzy. Uh, in 75, he famously turned down an opportunity to be the lead singer of the Sex Pistols. What? Yeah, right? Uh, he was in a lot of other bands. He ends up he was in Ultravox, this band that's in this story. Um, but none of them super, like got super popular in America. But he and Geldof in '81 had worked on this charity event together called the Secret Policeman's Ball. So when Bob calls Paula and hears that she's with Midge, he's like, "Oh, that's that's the charity. Like that guy knows about charity. Let me talk to him." So. It, if if you want any more of an impression of Midge, I did I did find this in the research. You want to know why they call him Midge? It's not because no. he's short. Okay. Uh, it's because his name is Jim, and he thought it was fun to do the phonetic reversal. Oh yeah, Man, that is. <laughs> this is why I don't know who Ultravox is. <laughs> I just like the I like the idea of pitching that to your friends. I, yeah. want, I want you to start calling me Mitch. <laughs> Why? Because you know, if you like took my name and you phonetically, and then you have to define what it means to phonetically reverse right. something to someone. Yeah. So Paula hands Midge the phone, and <laughs> and Geldof is on the other end. Uh, and this Midge later describes it as quote to rant on about the BBC News report about the Ethiopian famine. And he explains this idea. He says, I have this idea. I saw this report a couple days ago. And I want to write a song in time for Christmas. We'll call everybody we know that's famous. We'll get them to record it. And then we'll sell it. And we'll send all the money to Africa. And the famine will stop. And so he, he's like, are you in? And Midge is like, I, I, I guess. He's like, okay, cool. So I have this song that I'd written for the Boomtown Rats that the guys didn't like. I don't have lyrics for it, but I got all the music. You finish it, and then I'll just call a bunch of people, and we'll figure out who, who can sing it. So, th th dude, the most impressive part of this whole story is something I had never realized or considered. It's the speed at which this happens. So the news show, the news show that inspires him to make this, have right. this conversation at all, airs on October 23rd. Bob talks to Midge on November 2nd. They meet up for lunch to iron out some details on November 5th. And the first time this song gets played on the radio is November 29th. Wow. They did That's this fast. thing in five weeks. Dude, most places I've worked, we can't even decide what we're going to do in five weeks. <laughs> yeah, no, five weeks is... 
truncated at best. So so they do the recording session before that, right? So it it gives them just a few weeks to get these pe- to recruit all these people who are literal superstars and record this. And now wait a minute. Literal superstars. Some of them weren't. Like, some of them were Boomtown Rats. Come on. The drummer for Boomtown Rats. Nobody was going to recognize. I don't even think Bob invited the drummer for Boomtown Rats. I think he was the only member of Boomtown Rats, and I'm serious. Uh, okay. So, yeah, but you get Sting and Phil Collins. No, that's true. No, that's big. And and remember, a few years later... Now, okay, I like to bring this up on every episode I possibly can. And since you're not normally in the second chair, this gives me another excuse. This is peak... Genesis Phil Collins time 1984 oh yeah that's big time this was I I think it was 82 or 83 it may have been 84 where Phil Collins Mike Mike and the Mechanics Peter Gabriel and Genesis all had songs like in the top 10 at the same time yeah I was gonna say because Phil was doing solo stuff by then oh yeah 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 yeah. so first of all I mean if the question is how the hell did they pull this off let me first say they did not do it by negotiating with managers and agents like you and I would have done when we were putting shows on Right. Um, Just phone calls? Yeah. they Bob personally calls Sting, and then he personally calls Simon LeBon. Fun fact about Simon LeBon, later, in a couple years, Bob Geldof will have a short marriage to Paula Yates, and in his wedding, Simon LeBon will be the best man. Oh, I bet Simon is a great best man, too. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably better looking than the bride. <laughs> <laughs> so... I guess when you have Sting and Simon LeBon ready to go, like it's a lot easier to get everybody else to join. Yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I, I won't read the entire list of evolved artists at this point. We're going to talk about a few of them more later because some of them have really fallen into obscurity due to your point here that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but okay. just the big names should do the trick because I do want you to understand there is there's a respectable amount of firepower. Now, you have to think 84, some of these people are at different points in their career than you know, right. now we look and we say, well, I mean, in Bono's sort of in that camp. 84, U2 hasn't... hasn't they're not king of the world yet. They're not yeah. king of the world yet. They're sort but of up Sting and coming. is, right? Yeah, so That's you... That's like heyday police. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So Bono and Adam Clayton from U2, Phil Collins, George Michael, Culture Club, Paul Weller from The Jam, uh, Paul Young, Banana Rama, Jody Watley, Spando Ballet, Sting, Duran Duran, and Cool in the Gang. <laughs> So Geldof later reveals that there are three people who turn him down, but he's never disclosed who those three people were. And uh, if he got anybody on the phone and they could, they said, I would love to do it, but I literally can't, then what they, they, they try to figure out other ways to include them so that they could say, oh, and David Bowie and Paul McCartney are involved. And so David Bowie and Paul McCartney actually don't sing but they do like a message. Like if you bought the single, that hey, it's Paul McCartney. Support this single. But you know, thank oh, you. Wow. But they they do like a recorded message. Which okay, I'm, okay, okay. So also, I, I like I just like this because hindsight, you look back and you're like, it's just funny that he was like, okay, I'm going to call Bowie. I'm going to call Paul McCartney, and I'm going to call Big Country. <laughs> like That was a big hit. <laughs> like big Country going, oh my God, guys, we got Big Country. And now like... This is- Big time. I, I'm sending a lot of people to Google Big Country, but man, they had some they had some hot jams. Um, <laughs> I, here, okay, here's another fun fact: Thompson Twins, who are a big deal in '84. Yeah, '84, they're a big deal. They were unable to appear because they were out of the country and they were made aware of the recording too late. Um, and they were they were a big deal to me. 
You like the Thompson twins? I love them. Okay, tell me about that. Tell me about your love of the Thompson twins. Give me everything. Hold Me Now might be one of my favorite 80s songs. I mean, they were kind of creepy, though. Like, that girl had the half mohawk thing, and that's so it's like this uncomfortable. Was one of them a girl? Yeah. Are you sure? She was the non twin, right? Oh, there were the twins, and then there was a girl. There's three of them. Yeah, it's the Thompson Twins. <laughs> Google it. You, you know more than I do about the Thompson Twins. I feel a Thompson <laughs> Twins episode coming on in the near yeah, future. Yeah, you should definitely uh, guest. <laughs> so they, the, what they did is they donated part of the proceeds of their current single oh. to an Ethiopian charity. I don't yeah. think it was the same charity. They're just like, yeah, 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 Bob, sure, get off our back. Uh, okay. Good job, Thompson Twins. <laughs> so <laughs> we're proud of you. So you have the idea. You get this crew together that's fairly impressive. And you mostly have the song because it's already a rejected Boomtown Rat song. <laughs> how, how do you actually execute this thing, right? So Geldof's original idea is that he's going to call his buddy Trevor Horn to produce it. Now, you probably don't know Trevor Horn's name, but at the time, he was a big deal because he was having a lot of success producing a little band called Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Oh, yeah? Yeah. They just had three number one singles. So laugh if you want, but at the time, they're killing it. Uh, Horn is interested, but and there is actually... Uh, it begs the question if they were killing it, were they involved in this? And yes, Holly Johnson does one of the greetings. So big country, Holly Johnson, Paul McCartney, David Bowie. <laughs> um, so Horn is interested, but like a normal person who's successful, uh, he was like, bro, that's three weeks away. I can't yeah, do that. He opened his calendar, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, man, I got nothing. <clears throat> um, he says, listen, uh, I do have this one 24-hour period where my studio isn't occupied. And he and his wife actually own the studio. So on November 25th, which is a Sunday, he says, you've got like literally 24 hours. You got to get in at this time. You got to leave at this time, but you can have it. So they jump all over that. Midge becomes the producer because they don't have another option. Um, Later, they let Horn remix and co-produce a version of the single. But in the studio, Midge gets to be the guy. So he immediately starts working in his home studio, creating what becomes the backing track. Another fun fact. You will notice that in the above list of involved artists, I did not mention Tears for Fears. But it must have been huge by then, right? Yeah, and they're actually involved in this. So Midge takes a sample of their song The Hurting. It opens with this these drums, and he slows it down and he uses it as the intro. So those drums at the beginning of the song are actually Tears for Fears drums. They're not Phil Collins drums, <laughs> even though we're, I'm going to tell you in a few minutes about what Phil Collins and his, what he does, what he does with his drum set. So he also has John Taylor of Duran Duran and Paul Weller come to his home studio to add bass and lead guitar. But once they do it, they sort of decide that the lead guitar sounds bad. And so they like sort of keep it synth based. And then Midge sings the original guide vocal. Even though Simon Laban and Sting both came to the studio to add vocals, <laughs> Midge what a sings slap it. in the face. <laughs> and so then the big day happens. November 25th, they've got this studio. Geldof and Midge get to the studio at 8 a.m. They've already got media there. See, this is the thing Bob Geldof is good at. He knows how to rile up the media. So yeah, yeah. two things to note. There are so many celebrities involved that this has become, this has already gotten like this mass media appeal. But second... This is MTV's boom period. So documenting all this becomes more relevant and obvious than it would have been even like a few years before. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like I said, Gildoff's super savvy. 
So he's he also did this. He promises exclusive access to the Daily Mirror. So one reporter. I'm not letting a bunch of people in. You guys can be outside, but only one reporter gets to come inside. And so everybody else gets these shots, which end up making like some of the videos that you've seen where like they're getting out of limos and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. But, but then the one guy gets to be inside. Now, the real reason that he promises access to the Daily Mirror is that as part of this whole plan he has, he wants the group photo to to be on the front page or, or at least in the paper the next day. So he has this whole thing. He's like, I'm going to do this. And here's the, here's the plan. You can have exclusive access, but you got to run this photo the next day and you got to say, we're doing this charity thing and we'll make sure you have it by the time you have a print deadline. So they, he, he's thought all this through. He is a mastermind when it comes to the marketing side of this. Right. Right. Okay. More interesting stuff about how this gets recorded. You're a, you're a recording studio guy. You've been recording music for a long time. Exactly. Just finished mixing a record for somebody. Yes. So all that stuff. You know how you hear actors? They talk about filming, and, and sometimes they'll reveal that like the big finale scene in the big movie, the big blockbuster movie, they actually shot that first. I showed yes, up to yes. set, and I had to fight the aliens on day one, even though you mm. saw it at the end of the movie. So Midge is worried about the energy because he's got all these people and all these egos and he's got this limited amount of time. So he decides that's what they're going to do. They're going to record the biggest part of the song first. The big chorus, yeah. Yeah, get them all together. So all these stars show up and Midge plays the backing track with his godforsaken guide vocals. And then he's like, okay, cool. The line is, feed the world, let them know it's Christmas time. He just presses record, and then he has him sing that over and over and over again. Oh, God. And then Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm interested in your opinion on this, too, as a, as a producer and a creator. So then he's got all these egos in this room, and he's like, all right, cool, uh, you. And he picks – he starts with Tony Hadley of Spando Ballet, which I don't know. Maybe this is why Spando Ballet not a household name anymore. He's like you, you, you got you come you come record your single line. So, he, but he makes him do it in front of everybody. So, Ooh. so Tony Hadley is is recording in front of Sting and Phil Collins, <laughs> and the ghost of David Bowie who is phoning a message. Um, it's, but they go one by one and record lines for Midge to splice together later. And this recording session lasts for almost twenty four hours. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. No. So. I have to admit, I have some inside baseball because <laughs> I just watched, like four months ago, I watched the USA for Africa. So that's we one of the, the beautiful things. Yeah. Okay. So this is one of the things that happens in the aftermath, right? Like all these charity things start happening. So, right. so tell me what you learned. But, but so, so they did it a little differently, you know, in, in, in that sense. Like they all sang it kind of live. And they all kind of stepped up and did. There were a couple of off to the side solo things, uh -huh. but most of it was like three or four people around a mic. So you had to sing it like it wasn't like one by themselves. So it was like sort of a group effort. It was like the four of you have to sing this, and then if Cindy Lauper screws up, well, we're going to redo the whole thing. <laughs> and then you know, you know, Bob Dylan's getting a little impatient, and you know, uh, Bruce the, Springsteen is you know that tired. USA for Africa lineup is better. 
Like, and I, I think I think Quincy Jones had a little bit better idea of getting them all like at the same time. So there's some of that. If you watch the video, you know, again, Geldof films this thing. He puts out a 30 minute documentary. Like, yep. like who even like? There's not like a distribution channel for that in 1984. No, but he no. he creates this thing. And I think it gets some airplane MTV, and you can find it. It's easy to find on YouTube. Yeah, but okay. you can see that they do they do at a certain point, like Paul Sting and Bono and a couple people together to like do the harmonies and stuff. Okay, okay. So there is some of that, but I <laughs> but it does sound from what I've seen like what you're talking about is true. Where they you know they start to perfect this later as they do more and more of this and they figure out what works, um, yeah. and what makes a good photo, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, what what makes a good music video? Yeah. Right. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. So. Uh, here's the crazy thing. A 24-hour recording session, they wrap up at 8 a.m. the next day, and Geldof, because he's got this whole thing planned out down to the minute, heads off to Mike Reed's BBC Radio 1 breakfast show. So they do this on Sunday, 8 a.m. Monday. He's on the radio with the tape. Oh, he's already got it. Mixed. He's ready to go. He's ready to go. <laughs> and... cassette tape. <laughs> So you you can, okay, as a former radio program director, you can explain to the idea of rotation. So how often, you know, a hot song, you got the, you got the new song from Billie Eilish right now, and it, you're playing it all the time. How often yeah. are you playing it in a day on a, on a uh, top 40 station? The hottest of the hot, maybe like hour 30, hour 45, you think? Yeah, so that means you're playing it Every, like 11 times a day or something? 10? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Radio 1 starts playing this song every hour. On the hour. Rock and roll. Let's go. 24 spins a day. Uh, <laughs> the song has advance orders of 250000 within a week, and orders from record dealers uh, had topped a million by December 8th. So remember, this wasn't even an idea on October 22nd. It wasn't That's even an great. idea. That is so good. Uh, and that is what Black Geldof is good. you got to admit... That's getting. He might have left out some details, maybe on the lyrics, but he got the steamroll. You know, he had to cut somewhere. He had he had the distribution and the promotion figured out. He just forgot to write the song. So, (laughs) official release of "Do They Know It's Christmas" happens Monday the third, December third, nineteen eighty four. December seventh, they do a launch party at Royal Albert Hall. I mean, this is seriously how much pull this guy has for being in that Pink Floyd movie. Uh, the singles on the UK singles chart the following week at number one, and it outsells all the other records on the chart put together. <laughs> well, I mean, his heart was in the right place. And, and you know, you know le- legitimately, now we're going to get to some of the things where people are skeptical about whether this was a good idea or not with the money, but... The, the question is never whether or not the money got to where it was going. I mean, Geldof legitimately does this. There's not, like, high margins. There's not, like, a big conspiracy or thing about, oh, man, this was all, you know, bad news because they were disingenuous with the way that they did it. Sting that, didn't take a cut or anything? Sting, I, from my understanding, <laughs> nobody gets paid. Nobody. Which, and I'm going to tell you right now, 2021, that doesn't happen. I guarantee you, right. and we'll talk about the other times they've done this same thing. They've, done, they've re-recorded this song like four times. And the other times they've done it, I, I can almost promise you, artists have gotten something. They've gotten some sort of compensation. Maybe, maybe it's just travel or you know hotel or something, but like, they've gotten something. That, this just doesn't happen anymore. So, Remember I mentioned this is peak MTV era. Yeah, oh yeah. Another thing that typically takes time and money are music videos, but like nobody involved wanted to miss the video opportunity here. So they basically just make this promo video I was describing earlier that has tons of footage of the recording day. And 
they then so that's like for the song it's just you can watch that that's easy to find and then there's a 30 minute video title do they know it's christmas the story of the official band-aid video and it gets released in mid-december so they get they get that thing produced and up and ready to go within a few weeks too right well can we go back to the 84 have you seen some of the videos from 84 brian i'm not sure (laughs) a lot of time was put into any of them okay until aha take on me they were all pretty crappy (laughs) well they didn't really even understand what they were doing right no they just had a camera and and we've talked a lot. We haven't gone full dive into the birth of MTV on this show, but it comes up a lot because we're examining stuff around this time period and, and, and what it plays in. We did a recent episode on our personal hero, Bob Dylan, uh, recently where we talked about his first music video on MTV, which is a really interesting story and a really great video. But to your point, there's like not a whole lot happening. It's just them on a soundstage. Which video? A sweetheart like you. You know, I mean, I think at this point, what's so interesting about MTV, right, is seeing the artists, like having them in your living room. Right. Well, totally. That was the, you know. So later they have to like spice it up because all of a sudden they're going, okay, we've, we've, how many bands can we watch on a soundstage? And so the stories come along, the animation comes along to your point about aha. But um, yeah, so it's, it is though, like pretty impressive that they were able to milk this thing for both a 30 minute documentary and this uh, this sort of behind-the-scenes version of the video where everybody's singing. And, you know, the real secret of Geldof and his success in this arena of celeb charity that starts here and just continues is his knowledge of the industry and his ability and willingness to totally work the system. Like, during the whole process, he discovers rules about charting and nuances to getting certain types of airplay, and he just exploits all the loopholes. Which, really? yeah, I mean, we've sort of seen this, right, about how he figures out how to get on the radio the next morning and how he calls people and, you know, all this. But he basically just, whenever there's something standing in his way, he's like, but it's for the children, starving children, and everyone gets out of his way. Right, right. He did have that card. I'm sure he played it a lot. Uh, do, you, do you know what his plan was? Like, what he wanted to raise with this single when he started talking about it with Midge? A, a billion dollars. No, no, no. 70,000 pounds. That's 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 what he wants. Seventy thousand pounds. That's do, it. Do they know at Christmas raises eight million pounds within the first year? <laughs> What's the translation on that? Jeez. Uh, it, it, so when something like that works once, like we've already talked about, obviously you have to do it again. That's well, like capitalism. Six more times. Right. Do right. they know it's Easter? Do they know it's Valentine's? <laughs> Not to make light of it. Do you, you know, know it's St. Patrick's Day? <laughs> uh, but but no, for real. We've already talked about some of these. We are the world. Um, sure. And, and then there's charity events. There's comic relief. Like, I don't I've totally yep. forgotten about comic relief. There's Live Aid. There's Live Aid. Yeah. And then there's re-releases. So they re-release this same song in 85 and get money for it again. Then they re-record it in 89, in 2004, and in 2014. Wow, I didn't know that. I don't think I've ever heard those other versions either. And so it feels disingenuous to be on this show, even though Murdoch is not here this week, and not mention also how hair metal figures into this. Do you do you remember Hearing Aid? This was literally the heavy metal version of Band-Aid attempted by Dio. I've heard the name. Oh, because dude. I always thought that was 
so fake. So, like, I mean, at least they're. This is what I love about hair metal. At least they know who they are. Like, they didn't even. They didn't even try. They're like, we're gonna do the heavy metal version of Band Aid. Like, they didn't like try to obfuscate it or say it was their idea. They just straight up did it. Louder Sound, the website, which is an excellent website, has an oral history of Hearing Aid, where all these guys are talking about how it happened. Like the guys from Dio, Dio himself, and his bandmates. And the best part about this is that there is some crazy talk coming out of Ted Nugent's mouth. Like, he says the most insane stuff during this interview. Long story short on here, Nate, the concept of the charity single was, like, a little more established at this point because it's a few years later, and Geldof has, like, exhausted the let's do the loopholes thing. And so it took forever to get permission and to get a hold of the right people and stuff. And they knew at this point that there was a lot of problems with tax law. Like Geldof like just basically fought the British government on some of the tax laws and won, but like they couldn't keep doing that. So when they create Hearing Wendy Dio, who is a real person, Ronnie James Dio's wife, Wendy Dio <laughs> sets up Hearing Aid as a nonprofit. There is a nonprofit called Hearing Aid, which I just, I know you can't see it, so I'm going to spell it for you. H E A R capital N A I D hearing aid. No way. No way. Uh, You're making that up. No, that's a hundred percent real. <laughs> okay. So I, well, I think it's, I think it's a hundred percent real that she took Dio's last name. She took <laughs> <Dio's> last name. <laughs> I just like that. Her first name's Wendy. I don't know why that's so fascinating, Wendy. but it is. Yeah, it says a popular eighties name, but ba- back to band aid proper. Let's talk critics. It, not all of the critical response has been positive, as you can imagine. Even upon its release, they took some lashings in the British press for those lyrics we talked about. Um, well, they should. And the aforementioned ethnocentrism, ethnocentrism gets brought up more and more the longer or the farther away we get from the early 80s when we, you know, the, the sense of nationalism was higher. Um, and we have a more self-critical view of U.S. foreign policy. So the most damning of this bad press was this 1986 expose in Spin Magazine where they are able to sort of follow the money and they figure out that this project, as well as some of Gildoff's follow-up projects, may have unintentionally helped African dictator Minjitsu Haley Miriam buy weapons. Oh! That's not what you want. That's not what you want. This reminded me of this amazing book by the anthropologist journalist Catherine Boo called Behind the Beautiful Forevers. Uh, and it, if this book is amazing, if you just, this is a total rabbit trail, but it, it details the, she's a journalist and she goes and hangs out in Mumbai and she follows these folks who live in a slum behind the airport. Hmm. And one of the things that comes to light pretty early in that book is that all this world vision money, if you've ever heard of world vision, it's where you can like adopt a kid from India right, 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 right. and you send them 30 bucks a month or whatever. And they promise they, Oh, you're going to, it'll get them dental care and all this stuff. And sure, like, sure. there's all this money coming into India totally, you know, from well-meaning Americans the way it's supposed to, but then it's getting funneled into corrupt politicians pockets and all these terrible oh, things are happening man. with it. Yeah. Um, okay. But it's stated this actually hasn't done much to damper recreations of this exact formula all the way up to as recently as the last decade. They did this in 2014. So there you have the basic story of why and how this happened. But before we end, it seems the real fun to be had is in the what, right? We've talked about the how we've talked about the why, what happens when you get this many personalities together to do anything? 
and so there's lots of little stories and legends and rumors. So I will do this in a standard Q&A style, and we will just see what we can knock out. All right? Um, here, here's the first thing that I had heard. Did Phil Collins show up to the recording session with his entire drum kit, even though they'd already used the drum machine on the track? Do you oh, think that's true? Yes, he did. Oh, <laughs> hell yes, he did. And his isn't the... A little, it's not like the three toms, it's like eight or nine toms wrap around you. Listen, this is octagon (laughs) drums. What the hell are those? This is peak Phil, like, this is the this is his time. Uh, so he waits until early. This is why they were there for 24 hours. He waits until early evening until all the vocals have been recorded. And Midge is like, okay, we're good. Um, and he's like, no, 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 I want to record my own drum part. So they they do it, and then they get done, and Midge is like, great, we're done. And he's like, uh, no, 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 no. We have to do it again. So I want to double it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he had to like do multiple takes. Okay, now we, we touched on this earlier, but did Bono at first refuse to sing the god-awful line, well, tonight, thank God, it's them instead of you? Uh, yeah, I would imagine Bono can see through those lyrics. So he... Basically tells Geldof, I'll sing anything but that. And Geldof's like, no, 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 no. You have to sing that. Uh, he, he eventually convinces him to do it. And then here's here's like the fun thing. He, he does it again in 04. They bring Bono back to do it again in 04. And I'd read things that said he also didn't want to do that line in 04. But he ends up doing it. Now, that's his version of the story. Remember The Darkness? Yeah. So Justin yeah. Hawkins from The Darkness he was on that recording in 2004 and okay. he's on record saying that he recorded that line and quote, my version was much better than Bono's, but Bono's management got ticked off and wouldn't let them use it. Oh snap. That's kind of like them. Just, he just outdid Bono on his own line. <laughs> it's like when the who went on the rock and roll circus and beat the stones. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, It's just, it cracks me up because it does actually make sense. If Bono hated that line so much, why did he record it again 20 years later? And the point is because he was getting shown up by this. He was getting shown up by the darkness. By the fake metal guy. Uh, okay, so here's another one. Did George Michael get in a fight with Paul Weller of the jam? I, I hope so, because that would be fun. So <laughs> the, the story is it was just a verbal spat, but this rivalry does sort of last with George Michael bad-mouthing Paul Weller in the press for like a while. Like several years later, you can find things where he just – talk scrap about Paul Weller. Did, did he show him the royalty check from Faith? <laughs> Wave that in his Yeah, yeah, Fruit Machine face. didn't do the same numbers. Where's the jam? Uh, Where's the jam this year? Simon Laban apparently also gets into it with Paul Weller at some point. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, all I will say is that I love Paul Weller. It's, I love yeah. the jam. Um, I like Simon Laban, and I bet he looked good <laughs> getting in a fight. <laughs> That guy was good looking in the day. I'm just saying. Uh, okay, here's the fun question that you've already asked. Why was cool in the game? <laughs> can you answer that? Because I'm yeah. utterly confused. I totally can. They were on the same record label as the Boomtown Rats, oh, and they were in buddies. They were in the office when Goldoff pitched his idea to the label, and so they were like, "Cool, we're in." <laughs> They're the only Americans, right? Or uh, Americans? Mm, yeah, they might have been. And w- so one of 
I, I feel like this was one of those things where it was like rude not to invite them because they were like in the room. <laughs> it's like, oh, and, and <laughs> these guys can come. Uh, oh, it's like, wait, yeah. it, your buddy's oh, little brother was still in the room in high school and you like <laughs> felt bad for him. Um, okay, so here's another fun story about an odd inclusion. So I didn't mention this name earlier because I don't think anyone is going to know this name, but there was this woman at the time who was going by the single moniker Marilyn. Hmm. No, I don't know. And she'd had a couple chart hits a year earlier, but was like pretty, pretty much done in 84. But she'd heard about this. And so she just showed up at the studio. (laughs) They had to let her sing something. And then Geldof and Midge were like looking at each other like, we didn't invite her. And they were like, she's not on the list. (laughs) Do we make a scene or do we just like, like, I mean, she's a, she's an actual recording artist. We might as well include her. So they they just let her stay. Not the only one that did this. So there was an actor named Nigel Planer who had reached number two uh, with this cover version of a song called Hole in My Shoe. And he had done it as a character he played on TV. So this was like a a stunt where he was like the character on TV and he did this song as that character and then this song got some radio airplay. So he showed up dressed as the character from this show. The show's called The Young Ones, which I have not seen. And... Midge was like, no, nah, man. <laughs> this is where I'm, Marilyn, okay. But you playing a character. Get is that kind of like, is that kind of like in the, the USA for Africa where it's like Bruce Springsteen and Cindy Lauper and then like Dan Aykroyd standing there? Did he just show up? Is it like that? <laughs> I think What's Dan Aykroyd doing there. I think we forget that the Blues Brothers were like a legitimate musical act for a oh, while, which true. is strange. That's true. That's that, true. It's weird, though. Because um, that hasn't like, that hasn't stayed. Like we all agreed for a while to treat them as a musical act. And then we just w- ripped up that agreement. And so now our generation's like, why were they there? If they weren't dressed like Blues Brothers. Yeah, they yeah this doesn't count. <laughs> He's just wearing a sweater. Freaking Dan Aykroyd. Uh, so there's this other band that was like an older band called Status Quo. And Geldof brings them in because he thinks it'll sell it to the older crowd. Sure. But they suck. And they have to take their, their, they literally have to like scrape their contributions off of the track because they're oh, yes. bad. But Robin Egger, remember how I told you there was the guy from the Daily Mirror was in the room? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he has let the world know that the contribution that Status Quo made to the other artists was producing a bag of cocaine during the recording. <laughs> <laughs> Essential in 84. Well, and this is good because someone had to make it a party because Geldof, we've already learned, was a real taskmaster. Nigel Dick, who worked as the music director on the project, has said in interviews, quote, at some point somebody asked, hey, Bob, where's the food? And he lost his mind. He said, quote, this is a effing charity record and people are starving. Go buy your own effing lunch. That's good. I like Bob for that. Way to stand up. I mean, you know. Okay. It's a good idea. Last question. And this is the big one. This is the most famous story from these recording sessions. Is it true that Boy George almost slept through the recording session? He looks like he's the guy who needs some sleep. I don't know. <laughs> so this is another case of, of looking at the context, like what year it is. 84, peak Culture Club. Culture Club is oh, killing yeah. it. Oh, yeah. So Geldof is very set on Boy George being involved. So he calls him and he begs him. And he gets some sort of loose commitment. But when the recording session starts, he's not there. So oh midday hits, no Boy George. This is in London. Turns out Boy George is in New York. So he had gone to bed. 
uh, from, I don't know, partying and performing or whatever, he gets woken up by Geldof. And Geldof's like, dude, get on a transatlantic flight and get here. And George is like, nah, dude, I got Z's to catch. He goes back to sleep. He doesn't make, he ends up making it, but he doesn't make it until 6 p.m. So remember, it becomes a very long day. What kind of plane is he flying? How do you get there in six hours? Yeah, they, he had a, he had some sort of, uh, you know, I mean, like I said, Bob Geldof probably just changed, you know, like all the air marshal rules. Like he was, he was figuring it out. He was making it happen. Let this plane in the, the runway. It's boy George I going will, to Bob Geldof. I will say that it would be really hard to be one of his kids. Right. Because like, <laughs> it, you know, you have like an excuse, right? It's like, Oh, the dog ate my homework. Well, then you get to, you take that dog and you open up his stomach with a scalpel and you pull out the homework and you put it back together with crazy glue. Like it's, you know, it's a lot of pressure. So there you go. Next time you hear that godforsaken song and you're trying to buy yams at a Publix, you can turn to the person next to you and ask that very important question. <laughs> do they know it's Christmas time? And now you now you know they do. They do. In Ethiopia, they know that Christmas is on January 7th. It's coming very soon. <clears throat> uh, man, thank you for hanging out. This was so fun. Hey, th- it was a blast. It was a blast. I really appreciate uh, you having me on. It was fun to hear that story. There's a lot there I did not know. The memory of that song that comes back in my radio mind is that because there were so many like artists in Christmas music and oh, so many yeah. like songs. Oh yeah, I loved it when when Band Aid came up because you could always schedule it. You know when it when it came up, there was no artist conflict. You just you know, like you just said we're not even going to put rules uh, on it. No, just put Band Aid in. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's not conflicting with the Burl Ives or the Snowman song. I loved it. It was great. It was great to schedule it. So you're the reason we've heard. You're the reason I've heard that song 4,345 million times. That's uh, great. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Okay, so how can people get uh, your music and be looking out for uh, the, the new music coming next year? Well, um, definitely on Spotify and YouTube. We'll have it on, on all the major streaming services um, per usual. Probably just going to be a digital release, but uh, hang with me on Facebook. Look me up, Phil Medley Music, and we'll, uh, we'll uh, keep you posted there, okay? We are the story guys at gmail.com. Let us know your favorite Christmas song, what's on your Christmas list, or any other story that you would like us to check out as your own personal Christmas present from us to you. Also, you can support the show and give back that Yuletide gift of cold hard cash if you want. Hit us up, uh, Patreon, patreon.com, rock and roll bedtime stories. And until next time, I got to have a little help from you, Phil, because uh, usually Murdoch does this part, but I'm going to say, until next time, what should people keep doing? And you're going to say, keep telling stories. Ready? Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. Uh, until next time, what what should we keep doing? Oh, now? Yeah. <laughs> keep telling stories. You're a natural. You're, You're a natural. <laughs> they should put me on radio. This is... Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.